1 John chapter 3. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. One of our ushers in the back will bring a Bible to you to use for the first service, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be starting at verse 4 and reading through verse 10. When you got it, let me know. All right, we got two. When you got it, say, I got it. All right, that's enough. 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 4, reading through verse 10. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from mine. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him, little children. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Father, we ask that as we come into this text this morning that you open our eyes to it, convict us of our sin, and let us see and experience Jesus Christ this morning. It's in his name. We pray, and everybody said, amen. amen. About a year ago when I first met Eric and Aisha, uh, they told me a story uh, of, of, of an event that took place in their home. Uh, Eric was uh, finishing up uh, clean, cleaning, cleaning the dining room after dinner, and uh, there we go. He saw the biggest uh, mouse he'd ever seen just kind of fly across like the corner of his eye. Uh, from behind the stove and uh, just just barely caught a glimpse of it. And so, of course, he ran and, uh, and found his wife <laughs> and uh, told her, he said, I just seen the biggest mouse I've ever seen. So they get some traps and uh, put the sticky traps out because those of us who occasionally have the little Mickey in, that, in, in the house, we, we use these little sticky traps. Anybody ever been blessed by a sticky trap? And uh, so he put some sticky traps out and put one right up on top of the fridge there. Uh, the next day, they noticed that the uh, popcorn bag that they had left out uh, had a hole in it about this big. And uh, the sticky trap that was on top of the fridge, check this out, had been moved from the top of the fridge to the stove, and there was hair all over it. Now, mice don't do that. I don't know if you've ever had a mouse, but it doesn't move sticky traps. And uh, so they put two and two together. Did you see? Did you see the critter? You saw it. So they, they a rat, a rat had got into their home. And uh, so they moved out. <laughs> Packed their bags. Moved in with who, your mom? So you took him in, Miss Bonita. It's so kind of you. Um, 
called the exterminator and got the, got, got the little guy, the big guy. You know, Baltimore rats, we're not joking around when we talk about Baltimore rats, are we? These things are little cats, as big as cats, bigger than cats. If you have a rat in your house, <laughs> you don't remain indifferent. We can be indifferent about a mouse. Some of you not so much, but most of us, we can kind of, we can be somewhat indifferent about a mouse. We're going to take care of it. We're going to deal with it. But I don't care who you are. If you get a rat in your house, you're moving out. I, I would put a for sale sign in front of my house in a heartbeat. If I, I wouldn't even try an exterminator. Just sell the place. Try to get our money back. Call the landlord, break your lease, <laughs> whatever you got to do. You're not going to just remain indifferent, are you? Eh, we got a rat, no problem. Just going to lay down and read a little bit of a book, watch a little bit of TV, hang out late in the kitchen making myself a little snack. In the same way, if you have sin in your life, you cannot remain indifferent. But so many of us do. So many of us are more concerned about a rat in the house than we are sin in our life. Are you indifferent to your sin this morning? I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. Too many people see sin as a personal mishap with unfortunate consequences. But if I can sort of get through the consequences or if I could in some way avoid the consequences of sin, well, sin is in all reality not that big of a deal. John, writing this letter, wants you to know that sin is a big deal. The, the verses that I just read, he structures it in this way. In verses 4 through 6, he makes a couple points, and then he repeats those points of how bad sin is. He repeats those same points in verses 8 through 9. It just says it in a different way. And, and right there in the middle of these two sections is verse 7. Which reads, little children, let no one deceive you. He's essentially saying sin is really, really bad over here. And over here he's saying sin is really, really bad over there. And then in the middle he's saying, my little children, don't be deceived. Are you deceived? Are you indifferent to sin? Sin is destructive. We cannot be indifferent to sin. So therefore, we need to know the sinfulness of sin, a.k.a. how bad it is. So let's ask this question. How bad is sin? How bad is it? Well, let's take a look at the, at the text here. And what we see in this text is, uh, is a description of how bad sin is. 
John says, first, sin is participating in rebellion against God. John says, secondly, sin is ignoring the very reason why Jesus came. Thirdly, John says, sin is forgetting your identity as children of God. Number one, practicing sin is to participate in the rebellion against God. Let me restate that. Practicing sin is to participate in the rebellion against God. We see this in verse 4, and we see this in verse 8. A little boy picks up a stone inspired by his friends, and he throws the stone through a window of an old abandoned house. And he enjoys hearing the, the glass break and, and shatter, and he picks up another one and, and throws the stone and, and, and breaks another window of the house. It's not until he's older, until he matures and becomes a man and walks around his neighborhood and to his shame realizes that he was one small uh, part in a greater movement destroying his own neighborhood. As he saw buildings with no windows, buildings that had collapsed with no uh, protection from nature's elements. And what John is wanting you to know here is that sin is participation in something much bigger than you realize. If I could use another analogy with this march, whatever we call this thing that happened in, at University of, West, uh, of Virginia, someone picks up a tiki torch, say, they like tiki torches, and they're standing around a whole bunch of people with a bunch of tiki torches. I like tiki torches. I'm going to carry a tiki torch. No, it's not a, just a tiki torch. Don't you see? You're, you're part of, of something bigger that is destructive, that is dangerous. And it's not just a gathering, and it's not just a group of people, but you're part of a whole ideology. You see, that is dangerous. You see what I'm saying? You tracking with me here? Sin is not just some personal thing that you are doing. You're part of a greater rebellion, and this isn't just a rebellion against a person. This is a rebellion against God. Sin is participating in that rebellion. Look at verse 4. We see here sin is described. The person who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Everybody say lawlessness. Then he goes on and he clarifies and he says, sin is, read it, lawlessness. Come on, help me out here this morning a little bit. Sin is lawlessness. One theologian says that the idea behind that word lawlessness is eschatological rebellion. In verse 9 John goes on, or verse 8, I'm sorry, he goes on to further explain what he's saying. And he says, whoever practices sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of his devilish career. Meaning that's what the devil does, is he sins. Let me remind you of our story. Let me remind you of God's story. God is a holy, good God with a good law. God creates the world. Now, sometime, most likely before the creation of the world, we don't know exactly when, but one of God's created beings, who we now refer to as Satan or the devil in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, 
rebelled against God, beginning this age-old war for glory. Now, the devil brought then humanity into his rebellion as humans sinned against God and began to rebel uh, against God with the devil. The race fell into utter chaos, and that is the world in which we live, a sinful society. Now, let's fast forward in the story. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, eternally one with the Father as God. Jesus comes into the world to finally put an end to this rebellion. He takes the rebellion on his own shoulders, dies on the cross for sinners, so that sinners might be forgiven of their sin and made new part of this redeemed community. Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and then ascends to be with the Father. Now, the apostles believed and taught that we are living in this intermediate period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. This is called or known as the last day, the last age, the end times, the last era of redemptive history. Now, going back to this word lawlessness, lawlessness in Jewish literature is associated with this end time period. So, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians, the one who comes to deceive the nations is called the man of lawlessness. What John wants you to see here is that sin is participating in this final rebellion against God. As Satan and his armies seek to deceive the nations and have, for now 2,000 years, one final rebellion against God to try to grab God of his glory, sin is participation in that movement. Now, as you consider... The fact that sin is participation in rebellion against God, does that make sin more or less attractive to you? Does that make you want to just go out here and go back to your sinful ways? John wants it, this reality to make sin just utterly distasteful for you. As we recognize that adultery is not just simply a sin against your spouse, but adultery is rebellion against God. Ungratefulness is not just simply a sin against your environment, but it's a rebellion against God. Stealing is not just a sin against your employer, but it's rebellion against God. Uh, Children, disobeying your parents is not just a sin against your parents, but it's rebellion against God. God. Racism is not just simply a sin against another ethnic group, but it is rebellion against God. Sex trafficking is not just simply a sin against young girls and boys, but it is rebellion against God. You see what I'm saying? As we consider the reality that sin is rebellion against God, does that make you want to sin more or less? Well, let's move on. Number two, practicing sin is to ignore the reason Jesus came in verses 5 and 8. Practicing sin is to ignore the reason Jesus came. Let's say my man Raymond over here was kidnapped. 
and he's being held hostage in a basement somewhere on Lombard Street, all right? And so I get my man, where's Bullet at? I get my hitman Bullet. Afalabi, we got a we got a situation. Raymond, he's down in a basement on Lombard Street. All right, so we do our thing, and we kick in the door, and there's Raymond tied up. We kick in the door, and we're like, Raymond, get out of here, go, quick, go, go. And Raymond's like, Hey, good to see you guys. Why don't you take a seat? No, get out of here, go. They're gonna be back. Quick, move. No, we could just hang out here. I kind of like, I've, I've always wanted to live, live up down here on Lombard Street downtown. This is kind of cool. No, go, get out of here. He ignores why Mike Afolabi, a.k.a. Bullet, and I kicked down the door. This is what John is saying. John is saying, look, when you sin, you are ignoring why Jesus came. Look, look at the text. Look at verse, verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. The reason he came is to take away sins. We see here the purpose for which he came, which is what, church? To take away sins. And we also see his person which is one who is sinless, one who has never sinned, meaning his, his person qualifies him for his purpose. He is one who has never rebelled against God, and he has come to do away with rebellion against God. Verse 8 continues this. The reason the Son of God came, appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. Your biggest problem in life, they're not, it's not your circumstances. Your biggest problem in life is your sin. Your biggest problem, for those of you who are married in a difficult marriage, your biggest problem is not your spouse. Your biggest problem is sin. Your biggest problem are not, not your rebellious kids. Your biggest problem is sin. Your biggest problem is, is not being a single adult. Your biggest problem is sin. Your biggest problem is not your job. Your biggest problem is sin. I could go on all day until you get this picture. Jesus came for what purpose? Not to just simply change a couple external situations in your life. Not just to put a couple extra dollars in your pocket. Not just to give you a better spouse. Not just to give you more uh, nicer kids. Not just to give you a better job. Jesus came to deal with your biggest problem. And that is your problem with what? Sin. He came to destroy, it says, the works of the devil. This is why at the Garden Church, week after week, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the reason Jesus came makes it into every single one of our songs, all of our prayers, and all of our teachings, and all of our sermons. It's because we've got to always be reminded why Jesus came to this earth. Like John says in his gospel, we want to week after week behold the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sin of the world. In the same way that John beheld his glory and called those who were with him to look at Jesus and to see him, every week we want to behold him. We want to see him. The Lamb of God who does what? He came for one purpose, to take away the sins of the world. When we look around at society, what we see are the effects of sin. When we look at what happened uh, over the weekend, when we look at the situation in North Korea, when we look at the, the murder rate in Baltimore, which is at an all-time high right now for this time of year, what we see are the effects of sin, all right? Now, Jesus sees that as well, but he sees more than that. When Jesus looks at our society, Jesus sees, in addition to the effects of sin, he sees what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And so if we just look at society and all we see are the effects of sin, we will quickly grow discouraged in our ministry and in our life and in our faith, and we will give up. But if we can, like the old preachers used to say, with our sanctified imagination, see what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in society, in the world in which we live, as he is creating a redeemed community, restoring all things. And one day that spiritual reality will become a physical reality as death and sin is no more. If we can see that, now we can keep moving. We have to remember why Jesus came. You tracking with me? Can I get an amen? Maybe, just somebody? <laughs> Thirdly, Practicing sin is to forget your identity as a child. So not only is practicing sin rebellion, is participating in the rebellion, not only is it forgetting why Jesus came, but practicing sin is also forgetting who you are. You're forgetting who you are as a child of God. A couple weeks ago, our dryer broke. A loud screeching sound. It sounded like we had a bunch of mice in there. Uh, going around and around screeching. It wasn't mice. It was a, it was a, it was a pulley. It wasn't a rat either. Thank, thanks be to God. It was just an idler pulley. That's all it was. <laughs> now, um, my wife says, Joel, call somebody to get the, get the dryer fixed. Well, my dad is an appliance repairman. All right? So he's been fixing appliances for years. He's really good at it. Like, everybody that I know in Akron, where I grew up, calls my dad when their dryer has a screeching sound. And, uh, and I'm his son. So that means, no, I'm not going to call somebody. I'm going to fix it. If I, Carter, why are you laughing? If I call somebody, that's going to cost us $250, $300 or more. But my dad is an appliance repairman. I can fix it. And I did, by the way. All right, long story short. All right. My father walked me through it. If our father in heaven is righteous, 
Doesn't that you as a child of God say, make you say, I want to be righteous. I want to look like my dad. If that's my parent, then what does that mean for me as his child? I want to look like my father in heaven who is righteous. Now, this, this is confusing here, though, because as we read this, it, it, it almost sounds like he's saying that Christians no longer sin at all. And some, uh, some folks have wrongly applied verse 6 and verse 9 to actually mean that Christians no longer sin. It's called a holiness theology, that we sort of attain sinlessness as Christians. Well, now, the reality is, is, is that that's the furthest thing from the truth, Christians do continue to sin, and John has already made this clear. In John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if anybody says you don't sin, you're a what? And it goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if you sin or when you sin, you have a constant advocate. You have Jesus Christ who is advocating on your behalf as a sinner. So he's not saying that we stop sinning altogether on this side of, 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 of eternity. But as we look at verse 6 and verse 9, what we see is, is a couple of words. Let me just read this to you. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Nobody who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Skip down to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. You see, what he's using these words such as keep on and, and practice sinning. What he's saying is, is that a Christian is someone who doesn't practice sin. The question is not, do you sin? But the question is, what is your practice? Let me break it down for you in this way. What is the difference between a regenerate and unregenerate person? And if you're new to Christianity, those are, those are nicknames for someone who is a Christian and someone who's not a Christian. What is the difference between a regenerate and unregenerate person? Well, an unregenerate person sins with no conscience. An unregenerate person sins and doesn't feel any remorse for that sin and can make a practice of this sin. He can plan to sin. I, I hang out with some guys down in South Baltimore at a uh, cigar lounge occasionally, and I'm telling you, the world practices sin. These guys, as they talk about their life, they're, they're practicing sin. There is no sense of uh, restraint. I'm, I, I have sinned, I'm going to sin, and I'm going to continue sinning. And we certainly are not going to call it sin. So the unregenerate person practices sin, but the regenerate person cannot sin without their conscience being pricked. You could put it this way, a, a regenerate person sins against their conscience. A regenerate person sins and then struggles with this, this sense of godly remorse, this sense of godly shame now that sin has brought into their life. Meaning a Christian is someone who sins, yes, regularly and even habitually, but not in such a way that we can live without our conscience being pricked by the Holy Spirit. Meaning a Christian does not practice sin. You see the difference there? 
Let me put it another way. Uh, Augustine, the great African theologian, he said that prior to his conversion, he would pray this prayer. He would say, God, make me holy, but not yet. And you guys know what he means by that. Like, I want to be holy. I want to live a life of godliness. I want to do away with sin someday. But not now. Like, maybe tomorrow even. But not tonight. Now, if you're thinking that way, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it means that you're thinking like a non-Christian would think. A Christian is someone who says, God, just make me holy. I, I hate this. I hate the cycle that I'm on. I hate the fact that I keep falling over my own two feet. I hate the fact that I keep slipping up into sin. I hate the fact that so often every day sin looks more enticing to me than holiness. I hate this. God, please make me holy. That's the prayer of a Christian. So that's what he's saying, but then he goes on in verse 9 to give us the reason we, 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 uh, we have been changed. He says two things. No one born of God makes price of sinning. For, this is the reason, for, number one, God's seed abides in him. And number two, he has been born of God. God's seed abides in him. This is a reference, I believe, to the divine nature of the Holy Spirit that has been implanted into us at conversion. And now we have the light of God within us shining in the midst of darkness that will not leave. And so when we try to participate in darkness, when we try to participate in sin, God's Spirit just makes us miserable there. It actually is against our new nature. Man, I can't sin like I used to. I remember, you might say, I used to go out and I used to party and I used to do all of this stuff, and I just can't do that anymore. I tried it yesterday and it didn't work. I was miserable. I just can't have fun in the places I used to have fun. I can't delight in the stuff I used to delight in. Why? What's what's changed? Well, you have God's seed. You have a new nature. And so, yes, it's against your new nature to continue in sin. And secondly, you are born of God, which means you've got a new daddy. God is your father, and he is righteous, and his righteousness forms the righteousness of his own children. Sin doesn't change your adoption as a child of God. But your adoption as a child of God changes the way you view sin. Does that make sense? Oh, Christians, family, brothers and sisters, we have an advocate. If you act like you don't sin, you're a liar. When you sin, it, sin doesn't change your position as a child of God, but your position of a ch- as a child of God does change the way you view sin. We grow in our, 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 our hatred of it. John closes in verse 10 with a, uh, with, a, with a picture of families and a question that I'm going to ask you. Who is your parent Which family are you part of? Because everybody, according to verse 10, everybody really is part of one of two two families. 
Everybody has one of two fathers. And that is our Father in heaven. Or look at verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, John doesn't want you to question whether or not you're in the family if you are a regenerate Christian. He's writing to encourage those who are Christians. He's writing to encourage brothers and sisters Like, I don't want my children, when they're disciplined, to ever question whether or not they're part of my family, but I might use my family identity as a way to discipline them and and cause them to step up. Does that make sense? God doesn't want you to, if you're a genuine Christian, you've turned to Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, trusted in him. He doesn't want you to question whether or not you're part of the family. He wants you to be encouraged in it. But he's essentially saying this. He's essentially saying you are in the family of God. But when you sin, you're acting like you're part of the family of the devil. And this then, for Christians, is a motivation for us against sin. In other words, he's saying, you know the meaning of why Jesus came to earth. But when you practice sin, you're acting like you don't. And this is a motivation for us then to put sin away in our life. In other words, he's saying this, you are on God's side. But when you sin, you're acting as if you're participating in the rebellion against God. And this then is a motivation for us to run from sin. What is John's tactic here? His tactic is to show us what sin is. To cause us then to wake up to the reality of what sin is so that we might run from it and pursue holiness. If God wants you to see the devil, how much more than does God want you to see the Savior? The purpose of this passage is not just to get our eyes to focus on Satan, But the purpose of this passage is to get us to focus our hearts on the Savior. Have you trusted in the Savior? Do you know the Savior? John Stott, great theologian, he put it this way. He said, if the characteristic work of the devil is to sin, then the characteristic work of the Savior is to save. Family, if the characteristic work of the devil is to sin, the characteristic work of the Savior is to save. That's what he does. That's why this is good news, not bad news for sinners. Because we're all born in our sin, yet we have in him a good, sufficient Savior. There's a rat in your house. You cannot be indifferent to this. But in a sense, we could say that now that we see the rat and we know the destruction that a rat can do and how dirty and filthy they are, and they have these teeth that are like nine inches long and crazy stuff, all right? We, we, can, we see the rat for what it is. When you see the rat, how much more do you appreciate and know and love the exterminator <laughs> who comes to take care of the rat? 
And we're not going to be indifferent now when the exterminator comes in and be like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Oh, please, come in. I've got a problem. Come in. Friends, come in, Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. I've got a problem. He's your Savior. He's your hope. John doesn't want you just to focus on sin and the devil. He wants you to delight in the Savior. How do we do that? What does it look like to fight against sin in your life? Keep your mind on the Spirit. Romans chapter 3, verse 6. Focus on the things above, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Do not focus on earthly things, Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord, Psalm 25, verse 15. And there we know that we are his child. We have been adopted into his family. Do you know that? Have you ever realized that Jesus is turning rebels into children? Have you ever trusted him for his grace and turned to him? The Spirit testifies to my spirit that I am a child of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And so we turn. We turn to the Savior. We turn to our Father. We see the Son. We run to Him. We grasp Him. We cling to Him. And as John says in chapter 1, verse 29 of his gospel, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Behold Him. Behold Him. He is the one sacrificial Lamb. He is your hope. He's the one who busts down the door. He's the one who has come in to take care of the problem. He is the one who is destroying the works of the devil. See him, cling to him, run to him, grasp him, and hang on to him. Behold the lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life paid the price to make us one. The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember. He drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. And so with thankfulness and faith, we rise to respond And to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. If God wants you to see sin this morning, how much more does he want you to see the Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would well up in us a hatred for sin and a longing for holiness. Not just for some sake of some legalistic ritual or principle, but because we have come face to face with him who knew no sin, who became sin, so that sinners might have life. God, I pray for the person in this room who 
you are drawing to faith. I pray that you would open their eyes and that they would right now receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, turning from their sins, trusting in him, and know that they are forgiven of their sins. I pray for those who are believers struggling with sin. God, right now, build in them a reality, uh, an understanding of the sinfulness of sin so that they might desire holiness more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.